Okay, thanks everybody and uh, welcome to another edition of Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And as I always say, I don't know what edition we're on now, but it doesn't really matter. And I have a, a, a very special, and I would say almost a, amazing friend, not almost, uh, named Allison McDowell. And I met Allison a few months ago at an event uh, near me. And just to start with this, I, I consider myself somebody who's familiar with you know, stuff around politics, economics, et cetera, for decades. And in this group, Allison gave about an hour or so presentation, maybe an hour and a half. And even a kind of veteran like me, I ended up hearing her for about an hour or so. And I had the distinct feeling that I didn't quite understand most or even all, or, or I don't know how much of what you said, but I knew it was true. And that's a sort of contradiction, especially for me, because if I don't really understand it, then I, it's hard for me to know whether it's true or not. But I just had this sense. Now, the question is, what, what are we talking about here? And uh, I think what we're talking about is, as I've said, mostly concerning viruses and health, if you, if you, meaning the listener or all of us, are in a situation where we don't know the rules of the game, then it's very difficult to make good decisions or even evaluate what's happening to see whether it's valid or true or anything else. And so I've spent a lot of this last year trying to understand myself and to help people understand the rules of virology. Once you do that, you understand without a shadow of a doubt that there is no SARS-CoV-2 virus. Therefore, all these things that are being done in its, in its name, so to speak, are just not scientific, not valid, and not real. So that's one example. Uh, but here's another example, which I actually talked about at length in my heart book, uh, because I said, and to my shock, and now this is some six years or so later, uh, what I found out, uh, now let's talk about a different subject. So what about money? Now I, I said in that book, and I think attempted to, de to demonstrate, maybe even prove, that unlike if you ask most Americans, where does the money we use come from? We're talking about dollars. And most people would say, well, the US government makes dollars. Uh, the fact of the matter is that can't possibly be true because if you are the person making the money, in this case, dollars, there is no possible way you would ever go into debt because if you needed more money, you would just make more money. Uh, and so the, we all know the U.S. government has trillions of dollars or something like that in debt. And so that tells you 100% that they must not be making the money. They're borrowing the money. And it turns out they're borrowing the money from a group of private banks, basically, otherwise known as the Federal Reserve. 
Um, and it's a little more complicated, but that's the basic thing. Now, the problem with that is, and I explain in the book, if, if I want to buy a house and I have to work for money, and so the, I put in a bid for $100,000 for the house, and if the other person can make the money themselves, they just come along and say, I'll just make 150,000 and they always get the house. Mm. And there's no way I can win that game because the bottom line is the person who makes the money always wins. And the reason we have taxes, believe it or not, is not to pay for roads or healthcare or Medicare, or even the military. All that money comes from borrowing from private banks. The money that, and so the reason we tax people is basically to keep them poor and to pay back the banks. Uh, <clears throat> so there is no reason for taxes. If you made the money, then if you needed more money to build roads or fight a war or whatever you were gonna do, you would just make more money. And then you wouldn't need taxes and, and all the other things. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because with, with regard to money, that is the game we're playing. Now, 90% of Americans, or maybe 98%, or maybe 86%, or I don't know what percent, they don't know there's a game. Now, another percentage uh, so I would call this game a game of chess, you know, a high level. And the, the people who are playing it are grandmasters to a certain extent in this game. Now, most of us don't even know we're in a game. And then some of us know we're in a game, but they think it's checkers. And if you're playing against somebody who's a grandmaster chess player and you think you're playing checkers, you're going to always lose. And then there's another few percentage who actually know there's, uh, there is a game of chess going on. And then there's Alison McDowell, who actually is a grandmaster at the game of what? COVID or I don't know what you call it. And Militarized hedge fund gambling. <laughs> Militarized hedge fund gambling. So, the reason, not a grandmaster learning. I am apprentice. You know, you're, you're a grandmaster, and even grandmasters learn. I would say yeah. so. It's nothing wrong with learning. Lifelong learning. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with not knowing everything, right? You know, yeah, for sure. And there's nothing wrong with having said something six months ago that turns out not to be right. I do that all the time with virology, and you just you just pick yourself up and keep going. Yeah. But the purpose of of this hour is for us to have Allison explain as best she can what the game is and how it's being played and what you need to know about the game. Now, let me just say this. This is a, tough, this is a hard game to understand. And we can't, make, we can't have you explain all the rules in an hour. It's just not possible. And so I would encourage everybody after this to look, go to your website and we can give people the information or you can tell them where to read, where to go, what to look at. Uh, and, and so I'm going to be the one. So once I finish this intro, 
I'm going to ask you to explain the game, what, a little bit about how you got interested in the game. What is the game and what are the rules? And I'm going to be the sort of dumb guy who says, I don't know what a hedge fund is. Like, <laughs> and if you're okay with that, and I apologize before, if I interrupt you, it's not that I'm trying to be rude. It's just that I got lost. And maybe right. if I got lost, other people got lost. So if you're okay with that, let's give that a try. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, Allison. So how did, we, how did you get interested in this and what's the game we're playing here? Okay, so I had an unlikely um, entry into the game. Essentially, it was around school closures in Philadelphia where I live. And I realized that they were using test scores and standardized curriculum and test scores to close schools which I thought was not fair. And at that time, I was just a naive person who thought if they just knew better, they would be better. <laughs> not what, that the brokenness year? was an inherent part of the game. What, what year are we talking about? This is 2013. Well, okay, so eight years ago. Or so. Yeah, so I started fighting standardized testing and eventually education technology in the schools. And then I realized, wait a minute, it's about data. It's about pr creating profit off of people and their social relations, their relationship to the, the state, you know, whether your, your educational process. And it wasn't just about selling computers and selling software and selling cloud computing and selling consulting services, but that ultimately it was going to be about profiling people and packaging people as digital profiles. And so the testing was just one small, tiny corner that I nibbled into. And then this much bigger piece opened up. And wow. then what I realized was that it wasn't simply about how we related to the state through education, but it was going to be how we would relate to the state through healthcare systems, right? How we would relate to the state through food assistance, how we would relate to the state through um, therapeutic or substance use issues or housing. And I live in a city that's very poor. And it's surrounded by very affluent people um, and universities like Wharton Business School that are the kinds of people who like to make up these games. And I, I will point out, so Kevin Werbach is a professor at Wharton and his specialty is gamification and oh. blockchain. So um, yeah, so people can sort of look that up. He has an interesting series of things around called After the Digital Tornado. But so I know that there's powerful people and this is, this, going into the game, we have to understand that it's about power, not necessarily logic. People might say that doesn't make sense, but really raw power trumps everything. Like if you have a military, if you can buy the politicians, if you can buy the academics, you can make whatever game you want, even if it makes no sense. So I just want to be clear because a lot of people say, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, if you're the people in charge... <laughs> It doesn't have to make sense. As long as all the other people at your level will agree to play the game, the game is on, yeah. right? Even if it doesn't make sense to normal people. And that's, I think I often, you know, so I'm talking about people and their relationship to the state as accessing services. You know, you're accessing your education. You're accessing a health benefit through Medicaid or Medicare. You're accessing SNAP, you know, food assistance or a housing voucher. And all well, of that. Let me stop you there for a minute, yeah. just, just to clarify. And just when I say, if I tell you what I think I'm hearing, and if it, I don't get it right, I would, I okay. really want you to correct me. So 
you, we one could think <clears throat> testing students is a good idea because then you see if they're doing well or not. But what you're saying is the reason they tested students, or maybe not the reason, but one of the ramifications of testing students is to collect the data on the students to be used for other purposes. Correct, yeah. And the same with healthcare data or food mm -hmm. assistance. So right. these things which we think are quote, good for people because they help poor people or help people get food became used in this game to essentially data mine human beings. Correct. And so policies have been put in place in all of these different sectors um, that are data-driven. They say data-driven, evidence-based policies. And I'm sort of doing air quotes here because that's the language that they use. And that the data decides success. But what happens is, is when you package a social issue, meaning whether that's training the next generation to be contributing citizens or creating healthy people. When you define that as a data metric for the purposes of essentially it will become private investment, it becomes narrow, right? So your health, the, it, the only thing they start to care about is your you know, body mass index or your blood glucose level or something that's measurable. Like that's a quantifiable thing that you can do at scale for masses of people to run global investments. Is any one of those, they may play into your health, but they're not a true picture of your health, right? And that's the same with a test score. You know, is a child's third grade reading score a full evaluation of their educational quality? Absolutely not. Like, does it have some basis? Eh, maybe, but all these numbers can be gamed, really. <laughs> At least in education, they can be gamed. So you're taking them often out of context and you're using them for a purpose they were never intended for. Or they say they weren't intended for, but ultimately I think they were. They were yeah. always intended to run this game. So what, so what is the purpose that they're, or maybe it's too early to answer that question, but what, what's the purpose that, of using this data then? Okay, so... There's a couple of layers of the game. Yeah, I may have so, jumped the gun a little bit. There. No, well, it's hard to figure out what to say first in the yeah, game. Like, uh, you know, yeah. what are all of the rules? So for, first, we have to look forward and not back because I think many people in the current moment are looking backwards at the things they knew and they haven't necessarily been listening to webinars from the World Bank or, you know, Oracle or people saying what they plan to do. They're not listening to the people who have the power to say, we're planning to do this. They're reading lots of academic papers about things that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, that theory that they knew, but not they're not reading what the plan is. Yeah. And they're not meshing the two things. And I sort of am the bridge between that because I listen to what powerful people say and I believe them. Now that doesn't mean that everything I'm laying out here will definitely happen, right? right? I'm not saying it's all a done deal because people get really depressed but I can give an intelligence briefing as to the headspace of these individuals so that we can better strategize. Because if we don't actually know what their plan is, they often will direct opposition in ways that actually enhance their end game. Yeah. 
Yes. And we don't know because we're doing things that seem logical and they're, they, they co-opt that's like a jujitsu move. You know, they, they co-opt that movement. They say, thank you very much. You know, it's like Lucy in the football or something, yeah, you know, and we think we're winning. And then at the end they're like, psych, you know? And so I'm trying to say, I've looked a couple steps ahead and this is where it seems to go. So the Klaus Schwab's of the world, the World Economic Forum Davos crowd, they have been saying for over 10, 15 years, they imagine a future run by robots. Like, can they actually run a whole world on robots and avatars? I do not know. Like, will the earth sustain that many data centers and energy in the power grid? I don't know. But this is what they're imagining in their head is they see a world that's mostly run by robots where human labor, physical labor, um, knowledge labor and social labor becomes largely redundant. And they call that the future of work. You'll hear them always talking about the future of work that we need to be more human, right? We somehow, being more human is gonna save us in this future of work. But they're acknowledging that their plan is to dispossess vast numbers of humanity out of their current employment. Oh. Not by their choice. It's not like we all got together and said, eh, we don't really like treating people in a doctor's office or we don't really like having kids in a school. We'd rather just the robots do it or do it on an iPad. You know, we haven't decided that, but the Klaus Schwab's of the world, the, the you know, the Mark Benioff's, the Bill Gates, the Larry Ellison's, that's what they've decided behind the closed doors with the power players. So what do we do with all these well, Let people? me give you an example and see if it, it's even something as simple as, as you get a cab and you go and there's this guy from the Sudan and you talk about what life is like and that's his job and he makes a good living and you get to talk to somebody and all that is going to, he's going to be replaced by a self-driving car. And then there's no more guy from Sudan to help you uh, figure out where to go or, or anything yeah. like that. And I mean, I think we can agree that maybe there are some lines of work that are not great. You know, like maybe there are some things that could be automated. Right. But like... You know, I've mentioned the Japan Science and Technology Agency. They're imagining by 2050 that we will essentially operate without the burden of a physical mind and body in time and space. <laughs> I mean, like that's literally like the matrix when you're like in the pod and like something's walking around out there that's not you. They're sort of imagining that, which would be sound crazy if it wasn't the Japanese government who was way into social robotics is already working with people with serious physical disabilities, living through robots, through remote control robots. They're piloting these things already and they're running, SoftBank is running the Saudi sovereign wealth fund money and they're moving out of oil into AI and robotics. So there are these pieces that while you might sound like, wow, 2050, like we're going to like just be floating around as a thought cloud you know, in some nanotechnology sphere. Do, do I think that they can do it? I mean, I hope not, but I think we should take seriously that even if they don't accomplish that, that their plan is to like destroy the existing global economy in their efforts to make this happen. Right. And in this game. And that means destroying the global economy means getting rid of all the small businesses and all the mom and pop stores. Everything's consolidated. Yeah. So in this game, you know, it's like the monopoly game, right? Everything gets consolidated. You know, the goal is to get the board, the claim as much of the board. And the challenge with many people in assessing this is there, there's like, oh, this is the US versus China, or this is like geopolitics, which I'm not dismissing all of it, but really it's the elite class yeah. across all countries. And not just like, 
sometimes it's sovereign wealth funds like the Saudi sovereign wealth fund. It's the Vatican, right? It's the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's Goldman Sachs. It's SoftBank. It's, you know, Alibaba. So it is these top tier players, the couple hundred, hundred times over billionaires that are controlling the board. And not that they don't have rivalry, but it's sort of like they have their own poker game. And like, we're the chips that they're tossing out, right? Like it's an invitation only poker game that they're in and nobody really knows that they're in this back room like smoking cigars over the poker game. And it's not like, surely they have rivalry amongst each other but they have to actually get the game going. And so right now we're in the let's get the game going stage which is yeah. harnessing this whole global paradigm which is why they needed a global health situation to start the game because there really wasn't any natural disaster like for you know other than maybe nuclear war or something that was going to get the whole globe on the, the same you know marching in the same order at the same moment relatively speaking so and get get say a little bit more about what the first steps of that so it's not the first steps but these early steps of this game involve entail well, so if you imagine if you went to somebody down at you know the corner bar and you said, you know, in the next 10 years, they're getting rid of like half the jobs. And then the rest of you are going to have to compete through remote control robotics with people all over the world for like micropayments on blockchain. People would go ballistic, right? Like they'd be like, what? You know, when they wouldn't maybe believe you. But if they believed you, they would say, well, I'm not doing that, right? I don't want that kind of life. I don't want to live in this world they're building. So they need to get everyone contained before they people wake up to that that that, that, that they're in the game. Yeah. They actually have to turn everybody almost into a character in the game, like a token. You know, are you the boot or the dog, the Scotty dog or the house? What what avatar are you? What token are you? Because they're going to part of this game that I, I have come to later is to understand that it is actually virtualizing you into a. a a parallel dimension, dimensionality, if that makes sense. So both you're playing in the real physical world that is occupied by your physical body and your physical house and your physical car, but all of those things are going to start to exist in a virtual universe. And that's called spatial, the spatial web or mixed reality. Can you explain that a little bit more what you mean by that? That's so a- if you imagine that you know, in this game of global consumer culture capitalism, right? Like that, that we are a global world that runs on debt, you know, and war and toxins, you know, you know, some of these things, right? But we're all supposed to be good consumers. That's how, what keeps the money going. Because if we all stopped spending the money and getting this stuff, the whole Ponzi scheme would fall apart, right? right? It's the flow that keeps it going. And pretty soon that flow is gonna dry up because People are in so much debt and they, they're not going to have any money. And that's where the UBI comes in. But the planet has a finite carrying capacity too. Like we're causing a lot of damage to the earth in sort of unbridled, you know, industrial production. You know, right. in, my, in my opinion, we're doing a lot of harm both to the poor of the planet and a lot of natural resources. And so to continue this idea of consumer culture on a planet that has limited carrying capacity, it actually, capitalism as an economic construct has to virtualize. 
right? So maybe you, you like the whole, you know, fast casual clothing, right? Like H&M or the, you know, things like you're like, I'm going to buy these five outfits this season and next season it's going to be different colors and I'm going to buy another five set of outfits. No, like in this future, there might, you might get four outfits and I'm not saying this, but then you could have 200 on your virtual avatar and you would start to have consumer culture that runs into the cloud. Uh-huh. And not that there's no economic or environmental cost to that because there's the energy cost, there's the data centers, there's the water, but it's not the same. And so you can kind of feed people's, the idea in which people construct their identities through branding and, and acquisition into a virtual space. So, you, so you're gonna, they're gonna start building digital twins and they're doing it, you can see it in schools right now and the gaming, the virtual, I mean, the gaming environments is that people are kind of living in video games, right. you know, especially with the lockdowns, they're living virtual and lives. They, you know, even when my child was in elementary school and I didn't know it at the time, there were these stuffed animals called Webkins. They had a tag and you would buy, you would get the, like a birthday party, somebody gives you a Webkins little doll, little stuffed animal, and it would have a tag and it would have a virtual Webkins. And you could go to work in the virtual space and like go to the mine, the gem mine (laughs) and earn chits, like earn stuff to buy things for that Webkins in virtual space. And like adults did it too, I think. Like there were these whole universes of Webkins living in in that's Minecraft, that's all of these other virtual economies, gaming economies. So capitalism, where so much of the left is imagining that is falling apart, like no, it has morphed. Like it's in the process of going into this cloud-based system. And that's central to the game because as we're living in lockdown, the idea is to virtualize us. And in some ways it's through Zoom, right? It's through what we're doing now. And now we actually still look like real people, but in a couple of years, we might just be avatars, right? And then we might be several different avatars. We could split our personality and the capitalists could make money on all the different brands that we have, like depending on if our, our professional self or our fun self or, you know, like it's this infinite crazy cyber growth. So that's the part of the game though. is I the augmented I, reality. I think I'm getting it. And tell me whether this is, sounds right to you. Essentially, where we are in this game now is if you ask people 100 years ago, would you want something like like to talk like this instead of talking to your neighbor face to face, they would think you're crazy. Like, I I remember hearing somebody saying, you know, 150 years ago, you never heard a human speech that you weren't in the physical presence of that person. Yeah. that humans have an inherent revulsion of the, of this experience. And so what, what, where we are in the game now is getting people used to that experience. Yes. And so in other words, the children who naturally want to play with other children and fight with other children and run in the woods with other children and wrestle with other children, they're now getting used to the experience of just wrestle with something virtual. Yes. And so then they get used to it and they think that's what human beings are. Yes. It's like a crazy evolution into like from carbon to silicon, I really think. Yeah. Like Got a carbon based life form into a digital. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and my framing of this is that while some aspects of it may seem cool or interesting, yeah. um, you know, like when people, Pokemon Go was the soft launch for augmented reality. And most people 
you know, are not unpacking that Niantic, which was the company that, that put that out, was backed by InQtel, which is the venture capital arm of the CIA. Right. right. So if someone said, hey, there's this cool game where you can go chase things around the world and they can track you in real time, but the CIA is funding it, people might have like had like seen it differently, right, right. than they did. But it just seemed like fun cartoons, you know, right. or a fun so game. Parents unwittingly, again, because they don't know there is even a game, yeah. they actually um, literally buy that for, essentially from the CIA. Like they actually pay to do, because the CIA, if they tried to go direct to the child, the parents might say, no, 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 you can't. I don't really want the CIA selling something to my child. Anyways, my child doesn't have any money and I don't really want them to do that. But if they get you to think it's fun and the children actually seem to like that, you not only, you, you essentially pay for your own prison. Yes. And in fact, they're going to get the kids to code the digital prison because that all of this augmented reality actually has to be coded into place. So the schools are both normalizing with these behavioral currency classroom management apps like Classroom Dojo and Classcraft, um, behavior management and script. Like you get paid in chits, you know, um, you know, for being good, well-behaved students, you know, and you get and then you can buy things. Um, but then they're actually shifting towards all of the STEM and coding work because the capitalist system will never pay full price to code the digital jail. Like th that's not how this game works. The game works that you would never, it was, will be coded with unfree labor. And whether that unfree labor looks like a high school kid or a prisoner or a refugee person or someone on food assistance who has to do work works readiness like they have gotten the coding this basic coding work that's billed as like a white collar job but they know it's going to be piecework they know that this coding work is going to be the new piece industrial piecework um that's how it will be coded and so if we want to actually stop the game from being played we have to stop the coding of augmented reality which means that we actually have to stand in solidarity with oppressed communities so that they don't have to build it what what do you mean by coding well, so there's all the training data. So when the autonomous vehicle drives, it yeah. has to learn, right? It has to learn what all the, so someone is doing work with photographs, labeling them yeah. like cat building tree. And it's very basic stuff. Yeah. And even they've, they've broken down the blocks of coding so that like they're having preschoolers code now. Yeah. Coding it's, meaning they're, they're, noticing things which then get put into pattern it's like pattern recognition it's pattern. part of the cleaning up for the machines to learn it better yes you know and, and and then eventually maybe that won't even be as necessary but that is the that is the game board the yeah. game board has to be understood as the spatial web and so what they talk about the spatial web if you imagine you know you know, and I'm not in gaming spaces, so maybe it's already like that in gaming, but you know, you have a two-dimensional document with hyperlinks or videos implanted or things. And so there's an interaction, but it's a two-dimensional. Yeah. So imagine that shifted into your three-dimensional physical world, a smart city, you know, yeah. or not even a smart city so that things that you encounter in the real world will be layered with information. Yeah. 
you know, and it could be what is the health sanitation code on a restaurant? What are the taxes they paid? You know, when were they last renovated? What, you know, they, there's all sorts of information, but certain bits of information might be permissioned that you can't get unless you're a certain person, unless you can unlock it. You know, you ever get to a website and you click through and you say, oh, error, you don't have permission to go on this webpage, yeah. right? And so if you imagine with part of this game of how you move around the game board in spatial, the spatial web, you create as a character and your character is both you, the physical you and potentially you in a digital world you, yeah. like linked weirdly, um, through a digital identity and that tracks you in space. So all of the little sensors that are put on things, the smart lamp posts, the smart trash can, smart pavement, your iPad, your maybe eventually a nano bio nano sensor that's Im embedded in you, you're resonating with this smart environment and they're tracking you in the game. And then depending on your status, like where you are on the leaderboard, you have unlocked privileges or not. Got it. You're able to do things or you're not able to do things. Right. So and for the moment, it's the biosecurity state. And that's the normalizing thing that they can make everybody try to get them all on this digital identity system. You are a national security threat. If even if you are a healthy person, unless you can prove according to this bogus test that you're not. Right. Regularly, over and over and over again. Right. I mean, in Philadelphia, I'm hearing that the kids down to kindergarten children, five and six years old, will be um, subject to random screenings, um, COVID screenings, nasal swabs um, without their parents at any time yeah. to go to school. So this is already in place, this, this sort of horrific thing. So you have to prove that you are not a national security threat. And that is what they will push to get everyone to become a character in the game. Right, so in other words, if you, <clears throat> if you, well, so you, the real person, or even then eventually you, the avatar person, wants to go to a pub in order to access that privilege, which you, it will be known that A, you want to go into a pub. You have to demonstrate a certain compliance with certain right, certain- You have to have like a token. A token. You have a token to go to the pub? Yes. Maybe you get three at the beginning of the month. You know? <laughs> if and you're then, good. And same with buying food or paying your mortgage or flying to Florida or, or, you know, have going on a date or God knows what. Yeah. And the crazy thing is in this game, there's value created in the data, like the data analytics and the biosecurity state. I mean, in the running of this, because who's making all of the money lockdown, right? It's concentrated yes. in the finance and technology. Stuff? How does that work? Well, so the infrastructure of the game is benefiting the technology companies, which, which pretty much interface with defense contractors too. Right. Like the technology and defense are intertwined. We have to understand that this is a militarized game, yeah. even though it may seem fun. Pokemon Go is funded by the CAA. Yesterday, I just did a site visit around the University of Pennsylvania campus. I went to the building where ENIAC was created, the first general purpose computer, you know, 1943 to 46. That computer was built to calculate missile trajectories for naval, you know, aircraft, you know, or missiles off the, the Navy ship. So the computing has always been a militarized space. Right. And that's what people, 
they keep saying, oh, well, it's just a tool. I'm like, it's always been a military tool. It's yeah. always been a military tool. And that's fundamental to how I look at things. So it was conceptualized as, as part of war games or a military strategy. Yes. And actually a lot of the augmented reality, the mixed reality simulation is coming out of the entertainment software association, the gaming industries, which interface very closely with military defense simulation technologies. Yeah. Like I have a friend who, who works in that space and he says it's very fluid people who work in military simulation technologies and, you know, and, and the gaming world, it's very, it's, you know, rotating right. doors. So that even the gaming stuff, even if it's not a war game per se, that those technologies of mixed reality are, are military. And so that's benefiting, you know, and then the power companies, like whoever is in control of the energy systems, because this is going to take a lot of power, whatever this looks like. And I think the crazy nanotechnology people are all about trying to find innovative power sources right now. Um, and then, but then there's the hedge funds. So this is when I talk about militarized hedge funds. So remember, we talked about the poker room, you know, they're, they're, the, the major players have bought into this private poker game up there. And they, so they've got the game running and, the, and certain people are making money on the game in play. But then there's this whole system, what's called human capital finance, which is really my specialty. And people can find out more on my blog, which is wrenching the gears and, and my YouTube, which is Allison McDowell, just YouTube, but is human finance, social impact finance. Yeah, investing in human that. capital. So it starts essentially it's like placing a bet on individual characters in the game. And that depending on your relationship to the state, which will predominantly be indebted, you will be an indented an indebted character under lockdown, under consolidation of jobs and power, people will be thrown out of work, people will be subject to being independent on the state. Right. And I say, so, you know, in other words, let me stop you there. So you won't, you know, nowadays, or at least used to be, you would have your savings and your own your house outright and, and have your own independent business. Once all those things are gone, then all you've got is debt. Yes. Got it. And I will say for me, the framing that I feel is really helpful because we talk about digital slavery too. And, and I know that's commonly used, but I think an equally important paradigm is to understand if we understand this as an imperial project, as an empire, that what was done to indigenous people of the Americas in terms of dispossession yeah. and removal from their economic independence and their cultural practice into reservation systems, right. which then promises were made as far as annuity payments and things that were reneged upon, right? right. And once people were essentially captive and separated from their own means of historical um, you know, economic independence, yeah. then they were trapped in this system that they could not survive and often their families were taken apart and their culture was disrupted. And so as we're anticipating a future of smart cities and Agenda 21 and removals, I think it's important to know, especially when a lot of people are leaning on like, we're better than that. It's like, actually depending on who you were, we actually weren't. <laughs> So like knowing that part of the history is really, is really important to me. So, so they want to dispossess people. They want to put you under their control. And then, and then they want to bet on if you will behave the way you're supposed to behave. And so when you're in relation to the state, the social impact investors, 
And they're essentially taking over the role of the government because the government will be bankrupt because who is paying taxes? The rich don't pay taxes and the poor will have no money, right? And so that will create crazy austerity beyond anything we actually know right now. And then the investors will say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll step in and make an investment on these poor people as long as they do what they're supposed to do, as long as they manage their health, as long as they get retrained, as long as they are do their cognitive behavioral therapy in a VR headset, you know, as long as they eat the right food that's aligned to their DNA, yeah. even though that might be genetically modified food, you know, that will turn you into some sort of cyborg thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? If the and, actual reality of that food DNA connection doesn't actually exist. Well, but that does it. They're making up yeah. the game. Yeah, it's, it they're, doesn't they're, matter. They're in the back room, they've said, we're going to get these DNA nudge bands. Yeah. And we're going to take their DNA and we're going to make them eat the vaccine tomatoes. Yeah. Don't yeah. you know? Because we can. Yeah. You know, and. And, and how do and, they make money off that? Well, okay. So this hasn't all happened yet, yeah. right? So this is how they say they are imagining it. And whether or not they can do it is another thing. Once they give you a digital identity, I think the goal is blockchain, whether or not they can successfully create this blockchain identity. An interoperable data system. What, what is a blockchain? Okay. What is oh, that? Oh, I gotta do blockchain. Okay, so everybody is talking about Bitcoin all the time, right? Bitcoin, 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 okay. Bitcoin is just a tiny bit of blockchain. Blockchain is the underpinning of cryptocurrency. Essentially, blockchain is a decentralized ledger system right. for tracking things. Yeah. For tracking things and tracking information, not just it, any kind of digital asset, which could be a currency, but it could be a token, like I said, like a token to go to the pub. Yeah. Or a token to get in a car a ride share, right? Or a token to get one of those stupid Internet of Things scooters, right? Yeah. It could be it could be money, but it's not necessarily money. And they're looking to put on these de decentralized ledgers, which they claim are you know immutable and permanent, even though they're hackable because they're these like side bits that go in because it's they're locked in with cryptographic which is very highly energy intensive. So they've come up with these side chains to come in with information, but there are issues with them being hackable. People keep things in e-wallets, this not just Bitcoin, but the idea will be programmable money. So yeah. like your, the state will give you an e-wallet with your tokens to go to the pub or your vaccine tomatoes or whatever. Yeah. And you can't just, you can't use the tomato token to go to the pub. Like you can only, yeah. you know, and so, but the goal with blockchain is that they want to create everything in a permanent record of you. And that's part of the digital twinning of you. Yeah. Like the digital twinning thing will run on blockchain. So it will be big chunks that might fit on blockchain. Like you were born <laughs> big chunk, right? You bought a house. If anybody can buy a house, you rented a house, maybe, you know, yeah. that's a chunk you voted. That's a chunk. But then Every little bit, like you walked by that smart trash can, you know, with your sensor or you, you know, maybe you picked up a piece of trash and put it in the trash can. We'll track that, you know, for your Sesame credit. These, you parked or in a your, parking Your space. blood sugar was 200 instead of 80. Yes. You have a sensor in you. The sensors, yes. Your biometric, your brainwave. When you did your yoga with your brainwave monitoring headband, it was this, you know, 
because it's the internet of bodies too. Right. That's, so you know, then you get another token because you did that. Whereas yes. if you eat sugar that you uh, got in the black market and your blood sugar went up, then you don't get your tomato vaccine token. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's right. crazy. And again, who knows if they can get all the pieces to work, but there are certain key pieces. They need, they need the augmented reality world that's a military world, military simulation that's both real world and virtual. They, needed, they need to make you a character that they profile, right? So if you look at a video game, there's like a Dungeons and Dragons, I guess, like you roll the dice for characters, you have different points, right? right? For different attributes, like you're strong in certain things and you're not so strong in other things. You have certain weapons or that's you, right? Like what, what is your predictive profile based on? And some of this will come in, they've blockchained unborn children. In Tanzania and the Netherlands, they have unborn children on blockchain or they're born onto blockchain. So those children, their, their profile is determined by their parents. Did their parents follow the prenatal yeah. healthcare protocol? Are they low income? What's their education? So your, your heritage of that, the characters that you're born into family, like feed into your predictive analytics that define your character. Where do you live? That's part of that. And that's all intended to be held in this blockchain identity, which is being framed by many as liberation. Yes. Isn't this great? Because Facebook doesn't own you. You own you. You can be a great global brand. Right. And you know, even before you're born, you can start earning tokens. And you're going to be better off because not only you're not going to be allowed to eat like real meat, you're going to eat genetically modified eat the meat that we will sell you. Yes. Because we know based on your profile and the fact that you, you only walked 20 steps today that you need to eat less. Yes. I, and they, everything is engineered. It's it. I mean, and that's where the, the technocracy, like the industrial engineered society comes in, but it's, but they will place bets on you. So if you imagine that every person has a character in the game of yep. this augmented reality game, and you have, you know, you start the game with a certain set of qualifications, right? We think this about you. Yeah. And whether it's accurate or not, like they're making predictions, like we think you're going to be incarcerated. We think that you're going to become addicted. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be, and like goodness knows in this world they're building, like that's not out of the realm of possibility, but right. you know, and so they, they'll set you on a pathway to self-improvement. Yes. And so a lot of this is about with that, right? Because So you hear pathways, you'll hear continuum of care. That's another social worky thing. I don't know if it's in the medical, like we'll put you on the continuum of care. But the thing is the people in the, in the back room playing poker really don't want you ever off the path. Like they're just going to keep you going round and round. You know, you're, you're never going to get to be done because you're always going to have to be more improved. Yes. You know, part of that will be reskilling. Okay. The lockdowns. Now we've gotten rid of all the old jobs. Now we only have these three new jobs. You can code the digital jail. You can work for big pharma to create transhumanist cyborgs, or you can work on smart energy to power the jail. Like which, what the three options do you want? And then you will go into debt training for these jobs. And then when you get the lineup to put in your, you know, your blockchain credentials so the AI can sort you for micro work, they'll say, mm, you know, since the last time you finished that certificate, you need five more credits. 
<laughs> you know, they go back to the beginning. And so it's the game that they're laying out that we're. <clears throat> and by the way, we, we charge you for those credit courses. Yes. We well, that's, and the, the reality. And so this is the real part of the game is that it's this idea of securitization, which is the way that um, like the, these global financiers package debt and trade it as a commodity. Yeah. So, you know, and I don't know exactly what that looks like, but the way they package student loan debt, right? The mortgage debt in the last, the big short, you know, I tell people to watch the movie, the big short, yeah. that debt, you know, the, the mortgage debt, the, the healthcare debt, they'll take bunches of bits of debt and package it and then rate it by how, how likely they think they are to recoup any of the value on that debt. Yeah. And that's what these crazy finance people trade because we live in a global debt, military, toxic world economy. That's the only thing that they're, they can make their business on is gambling on this fiction. It's a fiction of debt, but it has real consequences for the people that are attached to the debt. You know, that's, that's, that's part of it. So, um, so the securitization, I just want to say that the reskilling, um, Phil Murphy, who is the governor of New Jersey, actually has set up something called the Career Impact Bond now, which is doing reskilling of lockdown workers for those three things that I told you, big pharma, energy, and coding. And um, they're going to securitize that debt on a platform called Edly. And this is why I keep telling if there's anyone listening who knows about finance law, Edly is created by this guy, Christopher Riccardi, and he created collateralized debt obligations, which were the toxic bundled assets that crashed the last global economy with the housing market. The CDOs crashed the last housing, like the last global economy. The same guy has set up a setup to securitize the debt for the reskilling post COVID. And that's the game. And there should be way more people than just me pursuing this. Yeah. You know, that's, there are people who are much smarter than me. It's very clear the same playbook is going on. Phil Murphy is 27 years Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is running these social impact bonds. They know it. If you're in the world of the game, even if you don't know all the rules that the poker people, the people in the back room know, you know to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And that's the problem when you, you know, we were talking about the. In other words, you don't want people to know that the fundamental reason for this reskilling is not to help these poor workers, but to bundle their, their, the, the investment or the debt so you can make more money and centralize more power. Exactly. And the thing about Phil Murphy's, it's not just the training debt, it was actually your wraparound services. So you're going to self finance your own welfare. Yeah. Like if you need, if you're a single parent and you need baby childcare, you're self-financing all of that. Even though the government put it? you out of work so Goldman Sachs could run this game. What do you mean by self-financing that? How does well, so, okay. So the thing that they're securitizing in the career impact bonds is something called an income sharing agreement or an ISA. And it's, an, it's a contract where someone invests in you and then you agree to repay your training debt or this social wel welfare debt based on garnished wages, future wages. Got it. Okay. So this was actually advanced in Purdue, a program called Back a Boiler. And Purdue is very big in global education, online education, sort of innovative debt. And there was a conference with Arizona State University, which is Michael Crow, which is in QTEL, 
Arizona State and NQTEL. And um, GSV, Global Silicon Valley, they have an annual conference. And in 2018, there was a panel on income sharing agreements. And the guy said, you know, and this is for your college. So this isn't just lifelong learning, reskilling. This is pre-COVID. But he's saying in a couple of years, we are just going to unlock a whole new huge equity market in these ISA debt. Like we're just waiting on this. And so I was thinking like, okay, it's state university systems or something like that. But no, it's going to be this reskilling because essentially the whole game means the implosion of any kind of normal college anymore. So you're, you're, words, you're always going to be in the game on the path. You're never going to be done with college or done with your graduate degree or done with your medical degree. You're always going to have to get the next skill. So just to be done with education, you just will just all do lifelong learning. Right, which sounds good, except that you have to do that in order to earn, earn these tokens. To unlock the chance to compete for work with someone in the Philippines right. through a robot. Right. And, and if you don't do that, you're, you get deep demerits in your social credit score, which means you get even worse vaccine induced tomatoes. And right. we get, will, yeah, you don't get I mean, to go the to the thing is you're almost in post reality. Yeah. I mean, what is real? Like I'm, 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 I'm hoping that you're real Tom, you know, like, but we, I mean, I have seen you. So like, I know that you are a real person. You've seen me. Yes. Sometimes what- Matter like, of fact, we gave each other a big hug. The last yes, time. I know. And you told me, yeah. So, so, but there are other instances where you don't know what is yeah. real. And if you understand that the people behind this whole program are like military psyop operators, yeah. like that the video game industry is working with like the people who are creating synthetic humans, yeah. it's this thing called the Institute for Creative Technologies at USC. And the people who set that up in the late 90s, it was the Army Research Lab and a former exec from Disney. Right. So navigating from a spiritual place, because, you know, I know that that's also part of the, the is to me feeling increasingly important, like being grounded in some sort of like natural energetic system, because this game that we're being thrown into or trying to resist or trying to navigate is all about electrical engineering yeah. and signals intelligence, yes. right? They, they imagine us, like when I went to the Johns Hopkins Applied Research Lab um, this summer, because when I was researching Event 201, I found out that Avril Haynes, who's the new head of national intelligence, was, a, was at Event 201 and was a fellow there. Yeah. And I wanted to go see it because they were doing um, neural prosthetics with Facebook and DARPA. Like you could just think and it would show up on your Facebook. And, and I wanted just to see it, right? Like to go there and be on that space to be like, what is this applied physics lab? And when we, you know, we got there and I'm looking and they were doing the the guided missile systems. That is when it, it was a partnership of the government and Johns Hopkins in World War II, but ultimately did the Tomahawk missiles and these other, and I'm like, we're the guided missiles. Like we are gonna be remade as characters in a game that is a military game. And we are going to be steered on these pathways that are outside our own agency or outside any sort of natural autonomy or connection to the natural world. And, and from the viral piece of this, it's a whole different view of humanity. Yes. Like, it's like they're trying to force evolution into yeah. that we become literally, I think, batteries are, you know, uh, Sophia Smallstrom has talked about this piezoelectric 
energy harvest that yeah. we actually become batteries to run an artificial life system. Yeah, got it. And that's really the past two or three months that has hit me so much harder is that the push for digital twinning is actually my concern is that a lot of the research that has been done around genomics and gene editing and CRISPR and these things are dual use. And yeah. so it's, it's far beyond you know, in traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's that the brain aspect and the, the genetic engineering aspect is more about using human bodies in ways to create new electrical systems, like yeah. new vehicles that are post-human. Yeah, because it turns out that uh, this may sound strange, but the DNA has very little to do with, quote, making proteins. And it's all about basically being an electrical antenna. And so I think that's what they're remaking the, the electrical system. Like, I think that that is, and it's not my expertise, but the more I, like Michael Bloomberg, who wants to run the global police state and who's, you know, in my opinion, even more dangerous than Bill Gates, he was trained as electrical engineer at Johns Hopkins. Like that's the background of this is the, it, it, the signals intelligence looking at um, macro eyes is one of these satellite imagery systems. And they actually, their logo envisions these silhouettes of peoples as dots and dashes. Got so they, they, they do want to reimagine us as digital assets, really as digital assets that are, that are tied to behavioral compliance that can be tracked with wearable technology in smart environments so that the people in the smoky back room can make a bet. Yeah. And the bets that they are placing are tied in with our connection to being debt burdens on the state. And we have to become debt burdens on the state by dispossession of our current economic status, our current status in terms of our relationship to our community, to nature, to everything. It's full straight up dispossession. And then we become a raw material. Got it. All right. So it's, it's the hours up. And as I said, uh, the purpose of this is not to uh, give every detail because obviously that's not possible. The purpose of it is also not to make people depressed and oh my God, like we're, we're cooked. The, the, the reason I wanted to do this is because I also believe, and I don't know if you share this, that the first step out of this is to realize you're in the game and get some sense of the rules and then you, you can say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to look for what I can do. Or, or you can then, if you, if you don't know you're in a game, you can't get out of the game. Yeah. And, and I think we can just leave it there and people will look into it if they want. And then just remind us again how they can hear more about what you're doing and what you're, uh, what you've been, what you're saying and how they can learn more. Sure. So um, I have a blog. It's called Wrench, like the tool, wrenchinthegears.com. Um, and then I also have a YouTube channel with a lot of interviews. You have to look on the other playlist because I don't do many of my own, but I have a collection of ones like this. So Allison McDowell on YouTube. And, and the one blog post I would recommend on the gamification in particular, uh, there's someone who's taught me a lot. Um, his name is Joseph Gonzalez, and he's 30 years in uh, game design and AI and blockchain. And we collaborated last summer on a webinar about augmented reality. So it's called like the webinar you've been waiting for or something like that. So if you, if you go to my wrench in the gears and put in webinar, it will come up. If this is of interest, there's three hours worth and it's a lot there. All right, Allison. 
All right. Thanks, Tom. How did I do? I really appreciate this. And I, I think we got it. And I, I really am grateful. And uh, I want to, next time we see each other, I will give you an even bigger hug. Uh, all right. <laughs> all right. Bye, Tom. Bye-bye.